Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday here. Tuesday afternoon, and uh, in between one thing and the other, let me see if I can do a tefillah talk here, Um, continuing what I was talking about last time. Uh, This tefillah podcast, as all of them are, is sponsored by the Stefanski family, and I was talking about trying to put together the history of davening, especially in its earliest stages, because as we've seen, there seems to have been no formal prayer uh, in the Bayesian period. Uh, and then things change. And by the time you finish the Bayashani period, there seems to be prayer of a formal nature. But exactly when and where and how it comes together is the question, is this a historian would say it evolved, slowly but surely, particularly taking notice of the fact that starting, excuse me, after the time of destruction of Bayas Rishon, you start to have for the first time a Gola diaspora, in which there are Jews scattered all over the place, first in Babel, and then, as you know, by the time you get to Achashverosh, Mefuzer Meforad, Bechom Dinos Machuzecho, so they're over the place. And then, talking the time of Alexander the Great and the Greeks and then the Romans, <coughs> we must have lots of records of Jewish communities everywhere. And as I mentioned last time, obviously, anything to connect them to Judaism had to be through the prayer, through the, what they call the synagogue, which is the base of Knesset, the place where the community gets together. Uh, so you have a base of Megdush by Shani, and you have Yerushalayim, and you have the Kohanim and all that business. And I'll even go farther and say that the Jews, Bederachlal, are loyal to the base of Megdush. Although that gets a little bit complicated because in Egypt they built their own base of Megdush, as I think many of you know, Megdush Chonyo. But putting that aside, the other Jews do contribute uh, generously to the base of Megdush, as far as we can tell, or at least. And many times, and many go on pilgrimages and all that. But think about it: if I were a merchant living, for example, in Greece or Rome, maybe one, and I was well-to-do, maybe once in a while I can come with my family on a long trip to, to visit you at the base of Migdash. But that's it, once in a blue moon. And so there had to be a way to do Judaism, even though you're not present when the carbonus are being offered or any of the types of thing of the avodas of base of Migdash. And that switches you to davening. So in other words. What I'm suggesting is, and I think this is the way most historians would attack it, I think, I think, that the physical metzias of people being scattered all over the place and therefore having no connection, impossible because of logistics, to have a connection with the Avodah space Amigdash, and yet at the same time you're living in a Geisha area but you want to retain your Jewish identity, that militated, it had to militate into a way that there had to develop an institution known as a synagogue, which... Uh, had to include the basic prayers. You understand? Notice it's a Jewish way of doing Judaism. How else do you do Judaism? You understand? As a community. Individually, you can keep Shabbos. Individually, you can keep kosher. <coughs> and so forth. But how do you do as at Seabor? Only at Seabor, you get together. Now, that's the reason that we do know that the Kriya Satoric played a very, very central role, probably bigger than the role plays today. Although Kriya Satoric is a big deal today, too. Um, 
and, uh, you know, and the Torah had a Maturgum system and all that, you know, which really uh, stretched the time. But there's other tefillahs in there as well. And Adrabo, there's no question, speaking historically, that the different communities included in their... What does a Jew pray for? So there are two things. There's the Yachid and the Rabbim and the Tzibur. Whenever I daven and whenever you daven, on the one hand you pay for the Yachid. Give me Bani Chaim as the and put it, right? In other words, you know, um, personal needs. But on the other hand, it's also true that you eat seaboard. You want, you, you down for Klai Yisrael. These are the two halves. And in the down, whether you realize it or not, I think everybody realizes it. So on the one hand, you say, you know, Baruch Aleinu, give me money. On the other hand, you also say, and all that business. So there's a communal. Now, in those days, there was no such thing as because there was a temple. So the prayers had to be organized in a different way. And clearly what they had to do was say, in whatever language you prayed, and I'll get to that in a second, in whatever language you prayed, it had to be, oh, what shall I say? Oh, Lord, uh, guard the temple and save uh, Klal Yisrael. And uh, keep us in Eretz role. Words to that effect, right? <clears throat> Not restore the temple, but maintain it. And uh, save us from foreign enemies. And that sort of thing. Okay, you know, makes sense. Now, I don't think there was any standard form of prayer. And most importantly, there couldn't have been davening in the way you and I understand it. I repeat, I'm speaking about the many centuries of the Bayashani. Because if they used to read the Torah in Greek, and we know they did that, the Kabbalah did the davening in Greek. If you take somebody who has no idea of what he's saying and you tell him to do Hebrew, he's not going to know. So they did in Greek uh, in those areas where they did. I'm sure there were plenty of areas also where they did in the Hebrew. They're more comfortable with it, or perhaps Aramaic or something like that. Now, the linguistic problem is there. This seems to be how what we call Philip Seber uh, gelled, evolved in different places due to the overwhelming circumstances of the go law that I just described. <coughs> uh, again, you know, not, not the way the Rambam uh, would put it, but also reflecting the radical numetius of the Jewish people with the diaspora that characterized the Bayashani period in general. Characterized the Bayashani period in general. <coughs> I might point out that one, uh, especially if you're in Makubal, one major element of... Uh, change from the from perspective was not simply the physical fact that the Jews are now no longer all in one country packed together but scattered all over the world but it's also the fact that one reality of the Bayashani period as opposed to the Bayes Rishon period was the end of tribalism <clears throat> in the Bayes Rishon period uh, you know you had 12 tribes, 13 tribes. Each tribe spoke differently, thought differently, you know, to whatever degree. Sometimes, as you know, they got into wars with each other. Um, and we know the different pronunciations and things like that. <clears throat> Having said that, I think the Arizal, I believe, says this, that each Shaban had its own, Shorosh <clears throat> Neshaman had its own davening, so to speak. Now, I don't know what that really means in the sense that there was no davening, as the Rambam would put it, 
But however, you, in Bayes period, but informal prayer. The, uh, a guy from Yehuda thought and spoke to God in a certain way. A guy from Zvulun, which is up north, thought and spoke to God in a different way, and and, and etc. So there were different, if there was any davening, there were different ways davening was done. Now, let's contrast that with Bayesheni period. There are no more tribes. Uh, the north was wiped out, as far as we know. Ten lost tribes. The south was Yudah ben Yaman. And uh, basically, they all were mushed together in the Bayesheni period. What happened in Israel? The Jews returned, to use a colloquial expression, in time Ezra Nehemiah, really it's a little before that, it's more complicated, but nevertheless, you know, it's rebuttal and so forth, but nevertheless, the Jews came as a blob. The only difference we're told about in Bayashani descriptions is Kohanim Levim Yisraelim. And the only difference, the reason you have Kohanim Levim Yisraelim is for based on English purposes. You know, this one does the Avodah, this one does the Truma, this one does the Miser. But what about the Yisraelim? The very fact that you call Yisrael means you mush together what used to be the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and maybe pieces of the old tribes. And so this was ironically kind of a melting pot or unifying factor, which could help in the dynamics of the creation of what eventually emerges as a single matbeah of tefillah for the whole Jewish people, which is something that took many, many centuries. I'm just saying the fact there's no more tribalism in the classic sense obviously played a big role and differentiated between the lack of any kind of communal prayer in the time of Bayes Rishon and the emergence of it in Bayesheni or after Bayesheni or something like that. You Now you have one Mitzvah called Jews. If I'm a Jew living in the time, let's say, the year 100 BC or the 100 CE or something like that, I'm a Jew. I, I move from Yerushalayim to Rome. I go on business to Athens. Maybe I visit Carthage. There were Jewish communities in Spain. I mean, I'm basically running across other Jews like myself the way you do today. It's not that I'm from uh, Binyamin and I'm visiting somebody from Sheba Don and I'm going to another Kehillah from Sheba Zvulun. As you know, that didn't exist. So Jewish was just one matbeah. Even though, I mean, let's put it this way. The knowledge level wasn't the same in all these places. What's the first mission in, in Gittin? Some places know about Lishma and some places don't know about Lishma as an important tonight of the get. That's a biggie, right? You can make a get no good. But obviously... In Chutzlars, they didn't feel that way because if they're not Bikim Belishma, so there are a lot of people in divorce documents that were done not according to Hoyle. You have to realize, you know, this kind of unity and diversity characterizing the Jewish Messias at the same time, and that has to affect the emergence of any particular form of prayer. But on the other hand, it facilitates the emergence of a general matbeah, a general matbeah of public prayer through the institution of the synagogue. So I'm going with all this is that by the time the base of Mesha destroyed the second temple, there already was, in you know, you might say its replacement ready to move, and that's the synagogue. Because the synagogues have been in, 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 in and that's a Greek word synagogue. They have been emerging in the centuries that the Bayashani was there. You and I cannot tell exactly what the relationship was between one and the other. But even in the you know, I mean uh, but we know it's there, okay? We know it's there. Um, now, the Rambam, idiosyncratically, I don't know why, in the beginning of the Holistophila, maybe because he wants to wrap up a nice neat package, as I always say, <clears throat> believes and, and says that the emergence of formal prayer has an exact specific historical circumstance, and the reaction to that circumstance was the creation of a single Matbeah of Tefillah for everybody. 
I don't know what he's talking about. Meaning, I know what he's talking about, but I don't understand it. Because this was not the case in the second temple era. But the Rambam would say, I'm wrong. The Rambam says, um, in a very unusual way, that you can uh, connect this with a story at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Okay? Now, this time, Ezra and Nehemiah, beginning, beginning second temple period. And I read the beginning of it last week. <coughs> and... Um, if you know anything about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, so the, some Jews, not many, returned with Zerubbabel after 70 years in, in Babel. Most of the Jews stayed behind in Babel. Uh, a certain number of years went by with ups and downs, and then they built the second temple. I spoke about that in my Purim podcast. And then, uh, as soon as the second temple was built, half a year later, Ezra shows up with his Aliyah, um, and he's battling intermarriage. And then, sometime later, it's not exactly clear, Nehemi shows up as governor under the Persians. So he's a from guy who was appointed by the Persians to be the governor. Um, and Nehemi has his adventures, trying to build a wall around Jerusalem, trying to battle against the Arabs. It's a fascinating, it's my favorite book in the Tanakh. It's a fascinating book, because Nehemi is Mr. Can-Do. And it's very real, because after defeating the Arabs and defeating the corrupt Jews and the Richie Riches and all the rest of it, um, Nehemi goes back home for a little vacation. That is to say, he goes back to the court of Persia. I want you to understand, according to the book, Nehemi had a very high position in the Persian court, and he gave it up to help the Jews in, in Yerushalayim. And then he came back, and ordinarily you would think that the Gaisha king would say, oh, you don't like the court? Most people would give their life for a job like yours. Heck with you. I'll give it to someone else. But the king says in the book of Nehemiah, I missed you and I want you back, and so on and so forth. But then Nehemiah makes a second trip, a return trip, let's say after the vacation, to go back to Israel. And he finds, like the teacher or the principal left the school for two days, that everything fell apart. It all went to the devil in five minutes. And like Sisyphus, he has to roll the, 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 the boulder up, up the cliff again. And he fights against Michal Shabbos. And he fights against the uh, neglect of... Um, Trumas and Maestris, and he fights against the infiltration of Goyim into the city, and this and that and the other. You know, he's trying to reestablish Yiddishkeit. Okay? And, uh, you know, the, the Goyim were setting up uh, 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 flea markets on Shabbos in Yerushalayim, and so on and so forth. And one of the problems, not the only one, one of the problems at the very end of the book, at the very end of the book, one of the problems is, is, is intermarriage, sort of. Okay, I'll read in English and then let's, let's read in Hebrew and let's see what exactly is the, the matzah we're talking about because that is the one the Rambam points to. Okay, that is the one the Rambam points to. Now, what does it say over here exactly? It says, this Nehemiah talking, uh, also at that time I saw the Jews had married non-Jewish women, Ashdod, Ammonite, and Moabite women. That's just interesting. The Jews had married women from the Plishtim. I don't know where the heck they found them. Ammon and from Moab. That's interesting. Here the Jews are in Israel, in Yerushalayim. Where did they pick up girls from Ammon and Moab, which are not next door? But okay. Quite, so they, uh, and as you, by the way, are they allowed to marry Am, Ammon and Moab women? Well, according to the Book of Ruth, yes, right? Moavi v'lo Moavis, Ammon v'lo Moavis, you know. Quite a, so let's assume that they converted them in some fashion or another. Quite a number of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and the language of those various peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. 
So what it means is that if a Jew marries somebody who's not Jewish and raises the family Jewish, that's one thing. You know, there are halachas about that, but that's one thing. But if he marries someone who's not Jewish and the kids are raised non-Jewish, that's bad. And from the fact that these children... Now, again, I'm assuming that um, they went through the motions and when they married these women's, women from Ashdod and Amun and Moab, they regarded them in some fashion. The thing is, to the, to the lady living now among the Jews in Yerushalayim, the Moabite woman, the Ammonite woman, the Ashtodite woman, she should try to assimilate into the Jews. Because when you convert, you like joining the Jewish people. And so the children should be learning Gibrit. But instead, he says, they spoke the languages of the, of the mothers, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. <laughs> so in other words, you could see from that that in spite of the fact that they converted and promised to be Shemr Torah and Mitzvahs and all the rest of it, baloney. Right? It's an indication, you get it? That's the partial way of reading it as I understand it. <laughs> Otherwise, what do you care about the language for? You know, in America, you'd say like this, I don't care what the kids speak. As long as they're Shemr Shabbos, Shemr Torah and Mitzvahs, they can speak Turkish for all I care, you know? Uh, the Shemr and Mitzvahs is what counts. Why does he make a big deal about what language they spoke? LMI, the language was a, a symptom. It was an indicator of where the kids were holding in terms of Judaism. And so if they're speaking Ashtodism and they don't know Hebrew, it means that they're totally uninterested in Yiddishkeit and they're growing up like that. And so he was angry because what you see is the um, creeping, uh, what's the right word? You know, deterioration of Jewish identity in Israel. It's like when they brought over all the Ruskies in the 1990s. You know, many of them are not even Jewish. And you have whole areas in Israel that nobody speaks Israel, they don't speak Russian. Now, I, Nehemiah says, I criticized them, I cursed them, I beat them up, I tore out their hair. I adjured them by God, meaning I, I, I told them, don't you read the Chumash? It says, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons to yourself. Notice, don't intermarry. Especially in a situation, like I said before, you're not dealing with a Gerrit Sedek, that's a different story. That's a different story, Gerrit Sedek. But you're obviously not. And so, you're dealing with a situation that the Torah says you marry someone from home else, they'll raise the kids like them. And he went on to say in the book of Nehemiah, it was just in such things that Shlomo Melch sinned. Hear what he said? Shlomo Melch married Gaisha women, and they led him astray, that's what the Pusik says. This is his mistake. This is a speech by Nehemiah. Among the many nations, there was no king like him, which means we all know how great Shlomo was. And so well loved was he by God, that God made him king of all Israel. And yet, foreign wives caused even him to sin. How then can you commit this evil, being untrue to God by marrying foreign women? And uh, one of the sons of Yoyada, the high priest El Yashiv, was the son of Sanbalat, the, the, the Arab leader. So in other words, even one of the Kohanim and a Kohen can't marry a Gilras. Did so anyway. He married the what we would say today, the daughter of Yasser Arafat. And uh, a Kohen? Okay. And therefore he enters the book, remember to their discredit, O God, how they desecrated the priesthood, the covenant of the priests and the Levites. I purged them of all foreign elements. I arranged for the Kohan and Levim to do work at the ships. And all the other subs, So he's talked, that's the end of the book. And therefore, it's one of the many parshas in the book of Nehemiah in which he's fighting against what we would say Jewish backsliding. Uh, okay? In Hebrew he says, 
Um, ooh, 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 uh, one minute after you talk about Shabbos, uh, so forth. The last chapter. Gamba Yami Mohaim, Roises Yehudim, Hoshivu, Noshim Ashdodios, Ammonios, Moavios. I saw, as he says, Roises Hayehudim, Hoshivu, they settled in, right? Uh, these women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Uvnehem, Chatsim Adabra Ashdodis, and their children, Chatsim Adabra Ashdodis. Ah, that's very interesting. So the English I read you is not exactly the way it is. It says Chatsi. Not that they spoke Ashdod language, but Chatsi, that's where the Rambam is going to come from. Right? Now, you don't have to read it that way. Rashi, or whoever the Miuchas Rashi says, Chatsi, Medabra Ashdodis, means half the kids grew up speaking non-Hebrew. The other half did. So you'd say like this, of all these intermarried people, some of the kids spoke Hebrew, Chatsi, but some of them, Medabra Ashdodis, Vena Medabra Ashdodis, couldn't speak Hebrew. The Colossian Amba'om, and spoke the languages of Amba'om. So that's a very uh, uh, unclear phrase to translate in Hebrew, right? I'll say it again, listen closely. Ubenehem, Chatsi Medaber Ashtodis, Ve'eno Makirin Ledaber Yehudis, Ve'chilshon Amba'om. So, as I said before, the language is not easy to translate and could be read in, in several different ways. The Rambam will read it in his particular way. And he says, I beat him up, I called him names, I cursed him out, I said, listen to the Torah. What a terrible thing over here, and so on and so forth. So, this was an incident in which is described as his battle against um, intermarriage. I will say it again, with insincere converts, um, not Gertzedeks, and because um, that's a different story. And um, for some reason, he mentions the linguistic part. Okay, the ch- It doesn't say, notice, their children were doing Karbonis Tavodizara, worshipping idols. It doesn't say their children were Bimachal um, Shabbos, or things like that. But, The Rambam built a lot out of this. I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that the Rambam read this Pasuk, of course, and it gave him a lot of thought. Because as I said before, the words are funny. Chatsi medabra shtodis, v'ena medabrin loshni yehudis, kilshom am And he gives a very interesting linguistic twist. Here's the words of the Rambam. Kivan shagol Yisrael b'minebuchanezer rasha, when the Jews went into Golish, nisarba b'paras v'yavim mishar umas, they got mixed together in Persia and Greece. Now, the Jews were not in Greece at the time of um, the Chemi, that's way before the Greeks came along, but okay. And they had children in the land of the Goyim. Now, the Rambam does not go and say, because their mothers were not Jewish. It's very interesting, right? He's twisting the narrative for his own purposes. He doesn't say, unless you're telling me means the very words of intermarriage. Nisarev, they intermingled. You know, but Pashibshat is, they settled there, okay? They settled there. Uh, that, that's what it sounds like. Yashu Bekirbam, as the Pirish here says. Now, 
When the they had children. So that's a mother who's Jewish and a father who's Jewish. And these children had a bilbul of sofa. They had bad, uh, they had a confused speech. And everybody's language was composed of different words. Now, big deal. Okay? Big deal. You're telling me they spoke part Yiddish, part Polish, part German. Big deal. We've all known people like that. I certainly am old enough to remember. Didn't mean they weren't Jewish. Right? Didn't mean they're not Jewish. But that's the way the Rambam is reading the words. It's a linguistic problem, he says. He wants to read Chatsi means half the words that they spoke were in one language, and the other half of the words, or whatever the percentage, were in another language or set of languages. So you end up speaking a combination of languages. Now, ordinarily, I'd say somebody's multilingual is a good, right? It's a plus. I speak Hebrew, I speak English, I speak French, I speak German. Very good, very good. But here he means rather the other way around. He didn't know a single language. He knew bits and pieces of different languages, and that was the best you could do. You were not the master of a single language, but you you, you just had like a, a potpourri, like a menu. So, sometimes they use a few words from Greek. Sometimes they use a few words from Persian. Sometimes from Hebrew. That's the best I know. I don't know better than that. Okay? But Kibun Shayim Madaber, and the Ramam suggests, I repeat, he suggests, that when such a person who is not raised in a single language, but rather in, in, in a cholent of languages, So then, this made him, uh, uh, as Ferdinand Sassur says, a prisoner in the prison house of language. If you only know 100 words total, you cannot be eloquent. You simply don't know the words. They're like a behemoth, you see? So he says that the result of this, growing up among the Goyim, and I repeat, not intermarriage. He doesn't talk about that. Growing up in Geisha countries, and the children in the street, and I can only assume they picked up some languages from home, and some languages from the from the, from the the other children in the street. So they spoke a jumble of languages, and they couldn't express themselves in a single language. And the result was, the Ramam suggests, You couldn't use a single language successfully, Without making mistakes. So it's an interesting twist on that Pusik. So, what does that have to do with the rise of prayer? And the Ramam suggests that as a result of that, what I just said, if anybody ever wanted to daven, his tongue was too short, meaning his language was inadequate to ask. For his needs. Or to praise God in Lashon Kodesh. In other words, put that all together. He couldn't ask God in Hebrew, and he couldn't praise God in Hebrew. Unless you mix them together with other Lashonas. You know, it's funny. There are famous stories of uh, Levi Yitz and and the Kleisenberger Rebbe I've heard, where they would stop, stop in the middle of Davini and start talking Hashem in Yiddish. So, you're mixing the languages, right? You shouldn't do that. You see, it doesn't have to be a problem, but the Rambam, being a linguistic purist over here, says it's wrong if you can't talk to God in Hebrew. You've got to be able to talk to God in Hebrew. Ask and praise in Hebrew. And they couldn't do it 
without the aid of other words. My friends, that's many people today. Not everybody's the best person in the high school, in the yeshiva, in Beis Yaakov, and know how to speak Hebrew well and all the rest of it. Many people come out of the system, and it's chatsi chatsi, you know, is what it is. Now, according to the Ram, that's a terrible matzav. V'kim shara Ezra Beisdino kach, and the Ramam suggests that when Ezra and his Beisdin, meaning Yanshek Sigdol, saw this, now Ezra is not mentioned in this connection in the passage I just read you in the book of Nehemiah, but Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah, and he was, it seems, in Jerusalem at the time all this happened, and so, although it's very unclear, I mean, was Ezra there when Nehemiah was away on vacation, and Ezra didn't do anything about the public uh, Mechal Shabbos? It's hard to hear. And if they were marrying, you know, Geisha women right and left, wasn't Ezra the guy who led the charge in the book of Ezra not long before against the policy of intermarriage, and he stopped it? So how come everything is said in the terms of Nehemiah? Well, put all that aside. Kim Shara Ezra Beisdino Kach, Om Dubatik Lem Brachas Al HaSeder. They created Shemun the first version. Okay? The first version. That's what he means. All right? Now, this is based on the Gemara Megillah, which the Rambam is taking literally. And it says in the Gemara Megillah, May of Esrim Zakenu, Vahem Kamenavim, Tiknu Shemun Esri Brachas Al Seder. 120 Zakenu. That would, according to the Rambam, that would be equivalent to the Anshik Sagdola. Anshik Sagdola is another term for the basin of Ezra. And so they're the ones, as the Gemara says, Tiknu Shemun Esri Brachas Al Seder. They made the original Shemun Esri. Not precisely the version that you and I have today, but pretty much the same Matbeah. Okay? Pretty much the same Matbeah. Uh, and they were in the form of three in the beginning, three in the, at the end, and the rest in the middle. Okay? So if it's 18, it's three and it's three and then 12 in the middle. So Shalosh Rishonus Shevach Lashem, Shalosh Achronus Hodah, Bem Sois, Yishim Shil is called Worm. So, um, the first three are praising God. The last three are thanking God. And the middle ones are, the, are, are requests. As I said before, requests for what you need as an individual and requests for what you need for Jewish people. They pretty much cover all the categories between the 12 paragraphs in the middle. They cover all the basic categories a person will require for himself and for the tzibur and for the Jewish people. Kulam Kedei and the idea was that once you create this relatively short text, it'll be able to be, I guess, memorized or mastered by everybody. Anybody, if they put their mind to it, can learn how to say the Shemin they learn it quickly. And the Rambam then says, as a result, the prayer of the most inarticulate and uneducated person, okay, would be would be a wonderful prayer, a shlema, just like a great poet, uh, so that's a highly unusual theory, as far as I'm concerned, because it doesn't say this in the book of Nehemiah, and it says his problem was the intermarriage per se, he doesn't seem to talk over there about the linguistic problem the way the Ramam does, but the key uh, uh, phrase, that funny pussy, and it is a funny pussy, Chatsi Medabrash though this, Kilshon Amba Am, and, you know, Veni Yochaladab Yehudis, those funny words the Rambam interprets to mean that um, they, they, they had a linguistic problem, and the way he understands it is people stop dominating, and that's got to be what it means. People simply stop dominating. 
if I can't express myself, I get very frustrated. Those who are teachers will know, sometimes you get a kid, and he gets frustrated, there's no good, right? He gives up. He says, why should I try? I'm no good at this. Every time I try, I, I stink. So uh, it's a big problem for uh, educators anywhere, Jewish or not. You know, how do you, you know, you want to cross the tipping point where the kid just gives up. The whole idea of giving somebody a bad grade is to encourage them uh, to do better, not to, to punish them, you see? And uh, here, the Rambam is saying that the lack of, of a facility in a single language made people, like, you know, ask God what you want. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You want money? Yeah, I want money. Uh, you know, like that. He felt very um, uh, inferior, and therefore they did not daven. They did not daven. And as a result, they made the Shemonestri. It's a little bit of a problem, because you didn't have to daven. Well, according to Rami, he had to do a little bit. He had to say, please, give me something. And people didn't even do that. Now, this is the famous T. Ray Rambam, and he goes on to say, This is the historical reason. This is the reason. They created the entire prayer system and the bracha system. So that the idea of the bracha would be there for the non-articulate, the uneducated. Um, that's that's where that is. Now, um, that is quite a statement. Here, I have to stop this for now. Okay. Uh, I had to have an interruption of a couple hours for something. But anyway, I think I was saying... We're talking about the Rambam's take on uh, the history of Tefillah, which is very unique and very uh, distinct. And uh, isn't exactly what one would come after a historical analysis, but the Rambam says I'm wrong. And this is what happened. And uh, I, it's an entirely self-contained shita. And he, Tainas, that there was a very specific circumstances. He says, Mipne Inyan says, I read you before, which means will be the type of thing that even a person who's not poetic and not articulate and not able to express complex ideas can memorize and learn and then internalize, obviously. And uh, after all, you know, is nice language. And any dumbbell can understand it. I don't mean to put somebody down. You don't have to be smart to understand. I need a refuah. You get it? Anybody can understand that. That kind of point. I'm not saying that that was exactly the original nusach. Nobody says that, but the basic idea is there. Here's an So this is an entirely distinct historical scenario. There's What I'm suggesting is there's the regular historical way of viewing this as an evolution due to the circumstances that arose during the Second Temple period when the Jews found themselves in the Greco-Roman diaspora, etc., etc. And that's a very good argument to make. And that's what somebody would do if he was just coming from a strictly history point of view based on the little that we know. And then there's the Rambam way, which is another version of history, meaning he's offering an alternative scenario. And what's fascinating about it is the following. The Rambam is Lishitaso, and that's because he has a very distinct way of understanding what was the history of feeling the bias recently when I told you we don't know. We don't know. The Rambam has a theory. And the Rambam disagrees. And the Rambam theory is that there's a Mr. Darius at a Davin every day, although not done till how many times, it's up to you beyond that. 
as the Rambam says in the beginning, mitzvahs lespal b'chol yom avadatim Hashem lokecha, right? But ain minyan at tefilas minatora, ain mishnah tefilas minatora, ain lefilas man kavua minatora. That's the Rambam's way. The Ramban and others say there is no mitzvah in the Torah to daven every day. Suppose I wasn't in the mood. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should be in the mood, but I'm not. Should I fake it? That's what you're telling me. You're saying you should fake it. You understand? Act as if you're in the mood. The Ramban doesn't feel like that. If you don't want to daven, heck with you. Literally. If you have Averis and you don't want to uh, you know, clear it up or something like that, that's your problem. So, according to Ramban, for the first thousand years of Jewish history, it's dealer's choice. I'm sure there were many people who were farmers, not articulate, this and that and the other. You know, we all know by his reason, a lot of problems with people half believing in Bazaar, not believing in Bazaar. Uh, the whole book of uh, Shmuel, uh, not Shmuel, but Melachim and Devayamim and the Nevi'im, Shai, Yermi, all full these issues. And a lot of unclear theology out there. At the same time, there were the Tzadikim and the Nevi'im also. And so Ramban says, listen, you know, davening is, is a wonderful opportunity. If you don't want to take advantage of the opportunity, don't do it. I'm telling you, God is listening all the time. That's actually very nice. You don't want to take advantage of it, you're stupid. That's all. By contrast, so that's the whole scenario of history. The Rambam has a completely different scenario. He said for the first thousand years, everybody had to talk to God at least once a day. Now you could talk to him ten times a day. Right? But the point is that the Nusach wasn't there. Well, not exactly. For some reason, the Rambam says that the Rambam argues that the Mitzah Min HaTorah, the Deraisa, is the model that the Shemun Esri adopts. Shevach, uh, uh, and then Mevakish Tzrochem, and then Hodah. You know, from the fact that Shemun Esri is written that way, the Rambam works his way back, I think, and he said that's the way the original Mitzah was before anything. So if you live in the time of Shmuel and Nobi Dovah at least once a day, you would say, thank you very much. But you would say, oh, you are great and powerful and awesome. You didn't have to say those words. You could say something else. You could say, you're amazing. <laughs> Whatever word you want to say. And after you said, you're amazing and gavaldic, then you say, listen, I need money. I need good crops. I need a shidduch, whatever it is. And then you say, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you or something along those lines. Hodah. There was no nusach, but it's a general model. That's the way the Rambam sees it. <laughs> now, that requires... A, the Rambam suggests a certain level of, um, what's the right word? Articulateness. Not a heavy level, but a certain level. And had been Lush and Kodesh, or at least it was. You know, when they lived in Israel in the Bayesian period, that was the language they spoke. And so, you know, a person would 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 talk to God at least once a day, and that be Yotzi Avaratim is Hashem Lokechem. The Rambam then suggests Put throwing aside everything I said about history, he's not into that, and throwing aside the Greco-Roman period, which he probably wasn't even aware of, you know, Rom wasn't into that kind of stuff. He could have been, but he wasn't into that. Just viewing it strictly from Jewish sources, he looks at this passage in the Chemia at the very end of the Tanakh. What I just read you was the last chapter of the Chemia, which chronologically speaking is the last period in the Tanakh, okay? That's the last event. And the result is that the Rambam says, you see people were speaking Chatsi Ashtodis. 
And he takes that to mean they were inarticulate. It doesn't have to be read that way at all. It could say that they weren't speaking Hebrew very well or something like that. It doesn't mean that they were not articulate. Because his theory is that this screwed up the system where a person spoke spontaneously to Hashem. Right? That's his words. That is, as he puts it over there, um, uh, what do you call it? So who cares? Who cares? Suppose I want to talk to God in Greek and, and Italian and French and all that. If I mean it, correct? I mean in America. Let's do like Breslov. A person wants to talk to Rabbi Shalom. Seriously, I'm not being funny. You know, he said, listen, I got SARS in the family. Could be illness, could be this, could be that. I got SARS. This guy I'm talking about who's talking to Hashem sincerely, like a brass lover, he's not a highly educated. His wife's not highly educated. They're Spain and Hebrew. And not Yehuda Levi's Al-Kharizis, you know what they can say in the Hebrew. He's talking English. So what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? You understand? And if the person is not so articulate, we own that story from the, who was it? The Baal Shem Tov, about the kid that blew the whistle. And he said, I'm not good, I'm t- articulate, but I can blow the whistle. Or something like that, right? Blow the flute. Mechitesi, you need to be articulate. In spite of what I just said, the Ramam suggests that that is key and central to the whole tefillah process. And articulateness or not articulateness, and remember, the Ramam himself was highly educated. <laughs> if anybody that was extremely articulate is the Moses of Maimonides, but not everybody was like that. Very few. So he's saying that since we know, he's work, in other words, as I understand, he's working backwards. Since we know, according to him, that you have to talk to Hashem every day, and since we know that is mentioned that there was a problem with the way people spoke uh, in the time of Nehemiah. And since we know that the Gemara tells us, Anshe Genes made the Shem Memela, you deduce from that that there was a, a crisis of articulateness and uh, this led to people not davening. He doesn't use those words, but that's what it sounds like. It led to people not davening because the person gave up. And this led to the reform Introduced by Nancy Sigdol, by Ezra Nechemia, to make Red Kim Shurayzik Omnu Tikkun Shurayzik Brachos, as he puts it over there, Vitiat Tfilas Ilgim Tfilas Shlema Kitfilas Bali Atzecho. That way, the non articulate people would be able to have something that they could fasten on. Okay? So basically, it's a little bit like a person today who walks around using cliches. I'll tell you what I mean. Suppose someone has something of education, Epis. Of education, so he'll you know he'll see a situation. He'll quote from a Shakespeare. Yeah, you get it. Oh, um, you know, uh, thou protest too much, because he heard it, and later on he'll say, "Vort is oh, you're a vort like Abraham Lincoln, government of the people for the people by the." But goes around quoting others. So if you know great people that you're quoting, all right, yeah, but you don't come up with anything on your own. So he's saying this way when they made the Shemoneshri, they could have great people's quote or the quotes Anshe Gesegdo. And that way, um, you solve the crisis of articulateness. This is, at least as far as I can see, an extremely simplistic way of describing what happened because, are you telling me all the communities across the diaspora uh, who didn't speak Hebrew at all were now using the Shemin Esrei? At least we don't have any evidence of that. Let's put it that way. We don't have any evidence of that. Maybe, maybe in Eretz Yisrael, Anshengadol started to start the business of developing formal prayer. That's very mistaber. But the way it actually played out was much more complex. 
Uh, and as I said before, you have to remember you're dealing with a two-tiered system. There was a temple, there was a base of Migdash. People held from the base of Migdash. They viewed themselves as in Golis. The Domini, whatever he said, had to reflect that. And in many, many places, people were so non-articulate that all the Domini and the Kriya Torah was in Greek, from a Greek Sefer Torah. From a Greek Sefer Torah. This bespeaks a world which is not identical with what the Rambam is saying, but rather uh, reflects something, uh, you know, more, let's say, called assimilation or something like that. Because the people in the communities that existed in the Greco-Roman world were not inarticulate. They were not at all. They just couldn't speak Hebrew well. <clears throat> they could speak Greek well. Look at the writings of Philo and all these guys and many other works, many other words. Greek they spoke, certainly at a basic articulate level. I'm not saying the Jews produced the phrase Greek poets, but they, you know, they could speak an everyday language. As a matter of fact, they knew Greek better than Hebrew, like many of us know English better than Hebrew, unfortunately, unfortunately, right? So that's not a problem of articulateness. Nevertheless, the Rambam says that what I'm telling you is wrong, and that the the way it developed was according to his derech, which was originally there was this deraisa, then there was a crisis of the deraisa, and it was replaced by the beginning of the Shemun Esri, not that he's saying, because he doesn't, that the original Shemun Esri is identical with the current one, but the broad idea of putting a template out there, because what he's saying is the original tefillah was the Shemun Esri, and that's supposed to be a template, and in that, you're supposed to stick the other ideas. Now, does this mean you should interrupt the davening for your own, uh, you know, uh, prayers? Notice, how much breast love do you do? That is already a, a whole discussion by itself, and that we'll save for another time. Because that's the that begs the, that's the first thing that comes to mind. If the whole shot is just to be a template, then it's just to help you. I'm an e-leg, I'm an inarticulate person. Now I'm going to be a balatsecha, so now I'll be articulate. But then I should, I should go and say my own thoughts, right? On my own, I'm too dumb to come up with Kabbalah, Shabbat, Gadol, and all that, and to think about the Matzah, or Klai Yisrael, and the Kibbutz Goliath. But now that I have it, Maybe I should say it my way. I said, you know, I read in the paper this. Rabbi Shalom, I saw on the internet this, and I'm praying such and such and such and such. Am I supposed to say this in the Milish Ministry? Or I should not say in the Milish Ministry? This is already a debate. And um, anyway, uh, this is a food for thought. This is uh, how we, we deal with the history of prayer in the very fascinating, but uh, again, very Mu'ur Paul, very unclear five or six centuries, whatever it was, of the Bayashani and the Greco and the Greco-Roman period. And with that, we'll uh close down our installment for today. Once again I want to thank the Stefanski family and I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com support dot rabbi david katz dot com